Welcome to episode 81 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, backpackers spend their time in the backcountry, but your first outdoor experiences were probably in the front country. We'll explain the difference. Then on today's top five list, you'll learn the key factors for making perfect popcorn on the trail, a skill that I do not take lightly. On the Summit Gear Review, we're trying a twist on the classic buff. Next on the Backpack Hack of the Week, learn a simple first aid hack that will change the way you look at your fast food garbage. All this, and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. Back in April, Josh and I did an interview with Brett Trout on the S'more Outdoor podcast, and it's all about the importance of getting outdoors and having that that time to recharge. And one of the things that drove me to backpacking was that I wasn't quite getting the experience that I wanted from my outdoor experience, you know, where you set up a tent and you sleep on gravel and there are people all around you and, you know, there's a bathroom and running water. And that really wasn't the experience that I wanted. I wanted to have a more I couldn't really define it, but a more separate or more apart experience where I could be away. And I would try and express these feelings to Josh, and he would say something like, well, to get that experience, you need to hike in a couple miles at least, and all the people disappear. You get a more wilderness experience. And he knew what I was looking for, and I didn't really know how to explain what I was looking for. I'm glad we figured it out, Josh. Yeah. (laughs) And you were right. How do you like that? Oh, thank you. Do you like hearing that as much as I do? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. The three most important words in a marriage aren't I love you. It's you were right. You were right. right. Yeah, because it's like, you know. Validation. Validation. Yes. So the backcountry is what I was really longing for. We start off, you know, with training wheels in the front country. Because this is where a lot of us cut our teeth. This is where we go car camping. This is where we go day hiking. So in the front country, it's a much more tame outdoor experience. You can usually expect bathrooms. You can expect the area that you're using to be ADA compliant. You probably expect some running water, maybe a shelter, or even a visitor center. And so if you're completely new to backpacking or really completely new to outdoor experiences, the front country is a great place to start. It's fun to try to draw the line between front country and back country, and no one really knows where that line is. Uh, the back country doesn't have all the things you mentioned, except occasionally you'll find uh, a toilet in the back country or uh, a campsite, sort of. And it's always weird when you do see things like that because you're like, oh, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. And there's this man-made object like, you know, a bear bin even kind of surprises me when I see a big metal box. And I always like to imagine how it got there. Like, were there some really strong people that hiked it in for 10 miles on their backs? Wow. 
or was it dropped by a helicopter? I don't know. I just... I bet Woody Hesselbarth would know. Oh, the guy who wrote the trail building trail yeah. maintenance manual? Maybe he would. He would. Anyway, there's not this really distinct line between the front country and the back country, but generally the front country is easily accessible by car. And so you're probably talking about areas that are within, uh, that are close to a road, maybe within a few hundred feet, maybe a mile. What's interesting to me is that it transitions so quickly. If you want to transition from car camping to backpacking, you don't have to put on 10 miles to get out into the backcountry. If you just put on a mile, it's amazing how much of civilization you'll leave behind and how much you'll see that most people have never seen. You're right. There is no line of demarcation from front country to back country. But our family kind of likes to joke that when you've seen the last cigarette butt, you know you've crossed the line. We call that the Marlboro line. <laughs> That's the definition of backcountry. The front country users, I call those AWOL users, and AWOL stands for all walks of life. These are people who may or may not have a real great understanding of expectations outdoors. Um, they may be at various levels of fitness and might not understand basic outdoor etiquette. And I think it's really important to have those front country experiences and to be with people from all walks of life, those AWOL users. Because what you do in the front country, what you do or what others do, affects your experience in the back country. It, it spills into the back country. So a good example of this is Yellowstone and the bears. The things that people were doing in the front country, you know, how they were feeding the bears back in the, I don't know, 60s or whatever. They just thought that was so cute, so fun. That affected what was happening in the back country. And it's still an issue today. Because the bears don't stay in the front country. They wander around. I mean, they have no, no boundaries. There's no line for them that they cross between front country and back country. And whatever habits that humans encourage them to develop in the front country are habits that they'll certainly take with them that evening when they head into the back country. And they encounter humans there occasionally. And that's where it can get dangerous. According to the Outdoor Industry Association, there are three times as many car campers and five times as many day hikers as there are backpackers in the United States. So that means that day hikers and car campers, when they're in the front country, have a huge impact on our experience as backpackers in the back country. And the number of front country users is only expected to grow. I mean, uh, day hikers probably going from 47 million people to 74 million by 2050. Uh, car campers from 42 million to 62 million. So there's this huge impact just because of the sheer numbers on the front country areas. Yeah, and that's assuming that Hollywood doesn't put out, you know, a movie about front country use and how awesome day hiking is and car camping, you know. I'm sure that movie Harry and the Hendersons probably spiked car camping for a while. Yeah, I bet it did. <laughs> no. Looking for Sasquatch. I guess. So since this is a backpacking podcast and we often have the opportunity to get into the backcountry, uh, we talk a lot about the right things to do when you're in the backcountry. And those things are at least as important in the front country because of the heightened impact of the huge number of people that are in the front country. And so it's really important to practice good outdoor ethics in the front country. In those areas that are close to the roads, uh, the established campgrounds, uh, the, the short trails. 
Leave No Trace has some great principles for front country use, and it's great because these will segue right into back country use. If you can master these Leave No Trace skills, it's going to make it, well, it's going to make it better for everyone else in the front country, but also it's just going to transfer seamlessly to the back country. These seven principles include things like being prepared, using maps to plan where you're going, don't step on flowers or small trees, uh, pack it in, pack it out, use a camp stove for cooking, don't use your campfire as a garbage can, observe wildlife from a distance. So front country really is a great place to start. It's great for day use and great for car camping. And as we talked about in a past episode, Day hiking and car camping really are gateway activities and will lead you into the backcountry where you'll have a much different, and I think personally, a much better experience. So to prepare yourself for good ethics in the front country, lnt.org, that's Leave No Trace. Uh, At lnt.org, they have a list of seven Leave No Trace principles for the front country. We'll put the link in the show notes for today's episode, which will be at thefirst40miles.com slash 081. While you're there, you could also check out their seven principles for Leave No Trace in the backcountry. Are we done talking about Leave No Trace? Because I want to talk about popcorn. Just don't leave any traces of popcorn, I guess. I never do. I eat every little piece. And the awesome thing is when you pan pop popcorn, you get those half pops. You know, the ones that are like really hard, but they're crunchy. They're still edible. They're not not like old maids. They're so good. So for today's top five list, we have the top five tips for perfect popcorn on the trail. And this is a list that has been two years in the making, possibly longer. I have been on the quest for perfect popcorn for as long as I've been backpacking. And I really determined, like boiled it down to some key factors that make for perfect popcorn. And I'm so excited to share this today. Okay, wait, before you get into the five tips, tell me about some of your past experiences with popcorn. Well, first I should say popcorn is your... Okay, it's like that commercial that they used to have back in the 90s where this lady was like, perfect popcorn is our passion. I totally related with that. Popcorn is your passion. I don't know why. It's it's your staple. (laughs) (laughs) It is my preferred starch in life. So anyway, there's the passion. So you want Um, me to start back from like when I was a child, like go back? No, let's not go back that far. Let's maybe go back two years. So (laughs) camping or backpacking and wanting to bring this favorite food of yours with you and pop it, you know, in a campsite or on the trail. What were some of the failures? <laughs> I'm well, curious. Yeah, well, I'll tell you something that I haven't done. I haven't brought the Jiffy Pop. I mean, I've done that at girls camp and stuff. And it's always a disappointment because the temperature on the fire is so erratic and you usually end up burning it and it's just not very satisfying. I've tried using the jet boil, which worked with some success. It wasn't really It's such a hot stove. I mean, it's it's built for boiling water. And so I felt like I I needed something a little bit more gentle for popping popcorn. Um, I also felt like I needed a big enough pan. And, you know, sometimes when you're backpacking, you just end up bringing this little tiny cup to boil your water in. So yeah, I I kind of had to experiment. I seem to remember that um, heat has been a major challenge for you to try to solve. Like you were saying, 
either, well, too hot, of course, and burning the popcorn, or, or the heat gets concentrated in one spot yeah. and burns popcorn there. And then I've also seen the symptoms of the volume or size problem. Uh, I remember last spring on our Redwoods trip, uh, you tried popping some popcorn in the, the lid of our lighter one bear canister, mm -hmm. and that was over the jet boil, right? And uh, and then I remember popcorn all over the picnic table there at that <laughs> campsite because it just started spilling out and overflowing out of the pan. And so getting that right balance of heat and getting the right balance of, you know, the right volume of popcorn for the right volume of pan, it seems like those have been kind of the big challenges exactly. for Exactly. Yeah. And yet, because you're so passionate about popcorn, you've had to figure out a way to bring this treat backpacking. I'm so glad we figured it out. So the number one tip for perfect popcorn on the trail is a two-quart pot. A two-quart pot is kind of a squatty pot. It's not tall and skinny. And the wider the bottom, the better. You don't want a tall, skinny two-quart pot. You want a nice, wide-bottomed pot because that's going to allow you, as you shake the pot, to disperse the heat and cook the popcorn much more evenly than a tall skinny pot. So we've been using the Evernew Thai Pot, which is 1.9 liters or two quarts. And we did a gear review on the Evernew Thai Pot uh, just a couple episodes ago, episode 74. And really with the two quart pot, it doesn't matter if it's nonstick or not nonstick. It doesn't matter as long as it's two quarts and you have a quarter cup of popcorn. The second tip for perfect popcorn on the trail is uncrowded popcorn. So we found that our two-quart pot will cook up a fourth cup of unpopped kernels perfectly. If we put in any more, then the popcorn would be all crowded and you'd have, you know, popcorn shoving each other around and you'd end up with popcorn like people at a Trump rally. Wait, you said no more Trump references. I lied. Like oh. a politician. Oh. Ooh. We're on one today. Oh, boy. <laughs> so uncrowded popcorn is really important, especially if you don't like burnt popcorn. Yeah, because if the pot gets too full, then the popcorn can't move around enough. And then it gets to where it's sitting in one place and burn. Yep. Oh, was that a Bernie Sanders reference? Ooh. Feel the burn. Well, the next thing that's important for perfect popcorn on the trail is generous oil. Now, a generous coating of oil in the bottom of the pan will make it so your popcorn is less likely to stick. Plus, the oil also gives the popcorn a light coating so the salt can stick to it perfectly. So how do you carry oil safely? So we just started using the Human Gear Go Tube, and we'll put the link in the show notes. And we've also in the past used a Mio drink flavoring bottle. It's perfect for storing oil, but it flavors the oil because there's so much concentrated flavor in those Mio bottles that no matter how many times you wash it out, you're going to end up with some kind of flavoring in the oil. And we shared the Mio bottle um, hack on episode 30, including the warning that it will flavor whatever you put in there. <laughs> and then you on our... Um, Redwoods trip last fall. Yes, yeah. on the Redwoods trip, you packed it in a trial-size contact lens solution bottle. Yeah, or, or travel size, the, the two-ounce uh, bottles. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. The top of that bottle actually pops off. You can fill it up with oil and pop it back on. So did you, like, use a screwdriver to kind of pry it off or your teeth kind of... Do you remember how you got it off? Pliers? No, I don't. I 
don't remember. I think I might have needed to use pliers. Okay. I can't remember. But that was a pretty secure bottle. Like we put it, I mean, any bottle that you put it in, you're going to want to put it in a Ziploc bag anyway to protect it. Yeah. And I don't think any oil got out of the no, bottle. No, it didn't. It was really secure. The number four tip for perfect popcorn on the trail is salt. Without salt, your popcorn will taste like packing peanuts. And I I used to work for this place and I was just doing temp work. And one of the packages that we received had these packing peanuts in them and they were made out of corn. And the guy that I was working with said, hey, these are like those packing peanuts that are compostable. They're made out of corn. And I was like, no way. You mean you can eat them? So I picked one up and put it in my mouth. And I was like, oh, my goodness, you really can eat these. Like, eat a couple more. And he was like, just stop. And a a few weeks later, I was not working there anymore. I think that (laughs) might have had something to do with it. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so if you don't salt your popcorn, it's going to taste like those packing peanuts, which are not salted, by the way. They just come plain in a box. Oh, really? Oh. I I was disappointed, but they're still good. (laughs) Wow, good to know. Yeah. Okay, so you've covered these four tips so far. The two-quart pot being big enough, uh, making sure the popcorn is uncrowded, so that helps prevent burning. Um, The generous oil helps prevent burning. Uh, The salt makes it taste good. So you've shared a few things that help to prevent that risk of burning, but there's still the stove. This was the moment where, like, When I figured this out, the angels sang. The number five tip for perfect popcorn on the trail is a mini alcohol stove. We mentioned that we tried making popcorn on the jet boil, but we also tried it on the super cat, you know, the homemade alcohol stove. But even that was too darned hot. So the solution is a mini alcohol stove, which is probably even cheaper than the super cat. So what you do is you take a tea light candle and you take out the candle and it leaves you with this little aluminum cup. Yeah, the little aluminum cup that the candle came in. Right. And what you do is you fill it halfway with denatured alcohol and it provides the perfect amount of heat to cook the popcorn. Of course, you might need a little bit more if it's windy, but really that little aluminum thing that covers the tea light candle that holds it in place is the perfect size for popping popcorn. It takes a little bit of finesse because you can't put the pan right on top of the stove. There's no air holes to let the flames come out. So you have to hold the pan about one to two inches over the lit mini alcohol stove. And you just keep shaking it until you don't hear any more popping noises. And then you can extinguish the flame if there's any flame left by just putting the pan on top of this little mini alcohol stove, or you can just let it burn off. Perfect. And so tiny. And then the amount of fuel you need is so little. And it's the perfect amount of fuel. It's great. So if you want a good primer on alcohol stoves, go back to episode 73, where we talk all about alcohol stoves and we share the hack um, of how to build your own cat food alcohol stove. But then come back to this episode if you want to do popcorn, because the the cat food stove puts out way too much heat for popcorn. So the tea light stove is your answer. And I put all of this stuff into one bag. Like I put the oil bottle and the mini um, alcohol stove and the popcorn and the little salt packets all into a Ziploc bag. There's my little popcorn kit. 
So as we went through this top five list for Perfect Popcorn, I think we mentioned three different past episodes uh, where we did gear reviews or hacks, which I think illustrates how long you've been working on this and how many different things all came together for you to finally find the perfect answer for doing popcorn on the trail. It may seem like a luxury. I mean, really, you could just pack a power bar. But just a reminder, Unpopped popcorn comes in at just over 100 calories per ounce, and canola oil comes in at 250. And so when you're done, your popped popcorn is going to come in around 150 calories per ounce. Now, you're only going to eat an ounce, but the, the calorie density is great on popcorn. So while it may seem like this kind of fluffy, fluffy <laughs> yeah, I was trying to find a different word, but we'll use it. It may seem like kind of a fluffy thing to bring on a backpacking trip, but it totally meets the calories per ounce criteria for me. And it's just a great snack and gives you a break from all of the um, dense food <laughs> that you're usually eating. That's, that's a good way to put it. For today's Summit Gear Review, we will be reviewing the Buff Merino Wool Neck Warmer. I love my buff. And so I've talked about wanting to get a second buff. And so when I saw this one, I thought it would be a great fit. It's not as versatile as the original buff or the wool buff, which is the one that I have, but it has similar features that make it a really great item to add to your clothing stuff sack. And it's kind of a crossover piece. Like it's something that you can wear on the trail and it has enough styling to it so that you could wear it in real life as well. So the Buff Merino Wool Neck Warmer is 100% natural merino wool. It's a double layer, and so that means that hot air can be trapped in between the layers of wool. So I felt like it was even a little bit better choice as a neck warmer because you had those trapped layers that were already built into the neck warmer. Plus the two layers are two different colors. So that's where you start to see the styling coming in where you, know, you can wear it in places other than backpacking. And wool is incredible. It's water repellent, it's odor resistant, it's flame proof. Uh, wool is very durable. It also gives you great UV protection and it's stretchy. It's got those little fibers that stretch. They're kind of boingy. Um, this wool neck warmer is semi-seamless. So the tube that is created on the buff machine makes it so the tube itself is seamless. But since they stitched two different colors together, there's a little seam at the top and a little seam on the bottom, which you won't be able to feel at all. Yeah, the nice thing is you don't have that seam running the length of the tube. For utility, this is a great piece for shoulder season because it just provides that extra warmth around your neck. For mass, the Buff Merino Wool Neck Warmer weighs 1.7 ounces or 49 grams. And it's shorter than the Buff that we reviewed in a past episode, but it is a double layer. So it's like having a Buff that's twice as thick. And half as long. And half as long. But you have two layers. I think that's better than having wool that's twice as thick. It kind of, it harnesses the power of layering. Yeah, trapping the dead air in between to provide more insulating power without adding more weight. And this is something that can be easily hand washed and dried on the trail. And because this is a double layer, it's going to take twice as long to dry compared with the other buff that we reviewed back in episode 9. The Buff Merino Wool Neck Warmer costs $32. That's actually $3 more than the full-size wool buff. So what advice would you give to someone trying to pick between the two? I think it's really a style choice. 
The wool buff that we reviewed before, I think that's a really great option, but I'm, I'm offering this one as another option. So if someone wanted to have something that they could fit into their wardrobe, I feel like we have a lot of pieces of gear that we do that with, yeah. that we use every day, but then we also take them on the trail. If you know you're going to be using it on the trail and on your way to work, then you get more use out of it. It seems like the full-size wool buff has more um, configurations for wearing it um, because it's it's longer, so you can turn it into a hat by kind of twisting it, uh, and some other things that you can do to you know to use that full length of the buff. So this one may be less versatile in terms of wearing configurations, but more versatile in terms of situations or environments where you'd wear it. Yeah. Well, how's it been working out for you? Well, I wore it two different ways, mostly as a neck warmer, like as prescribed or proscribed. How to Prescribed. Uh-huh. Proscribed is something that they tell you not to do. Oh, well, this is as prescribed. I read the instructions and I wore it around my neck, but then I went all rogue and wore it on my head. So I found that it worked really great to just pull it up all the way. Like, okay, so if I'm wearing it around my neck, I would pull it all the way up over my head and wear it kind of like a hat. And I have pretty longish hair. And so it did a great job of keeping the hair out of my face. So this buff, I like that it's half size. And if you want to wear it like a neck gaiter, it works great. And if you want to wear it like a hat, you just pull it up over your hair. So it's a hat with a hole in the top that yeah. kind of flops over and covers you anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think both buffs are a great option on the trail. I love my wool buff. And I also love this neck gaiter, and I think they both really deserve a place in my pack. So if you're considering one of these and and kind of uh, trying to decide between the two, then go back to episode nine to hear that review and then make a decision. For today's backpack hack of the week, ibuprofen in a straw. Good old vitamin I. Vitamin I is like the nickname that backpackers use for ibuprofen because... It's such a staple on the trail. Besides bandages, it's probably the number one thing that belongs in every backpacker's first aid kit. But you really don't need the full bottle. So if you're looking for a lightweight way to protect your ibuprofen until you need to use it, then all you need is a plastic drinking straw, some Advil, a pair of pliers, and a lighter or a match. Now typically I buy the store brand of ibuprofen, But when I tried to do this little project at home, the store brand didn't fit inside the standard straw. So either I need to change where I eat my fast food or I need to buy the nice brand of ibuprofen. So since we don't eat fast food that often, I just grabbed the Advil and it fit perfectly inside the standard fast food sized straw. So to make this little Advil-filled tube, you seal the end of the straw by pinching it with the pliers and holding a flame to it. And that kind of melts the plastic a little bit. And then you take the pliers and you pinch that melted plastic. So you're closing off one end of the straw. And then you fill that section of straw with as many ibuprofen tablets as you want. Some people have a little kit that they put their stuff into, like in a, you know, an old Altoids tin or a little plastic box. So just make sure that your little ibuprofen straw will fit in that little container. And then what you want to do is leave enough room at the end of the straw to pinch it and to melt it. So if you if you cut off the straw too close to that last little ibuprofen tablet and you try and melt it, it's going to end up 
not closing. So leave, I don't know, about maybe a centimeter so you can at least pinch that end of the straw and then just melt it like you melted the other end. So now you have a straw with both ends sealed and a little, you know, stack of ibuprofen pills in between. So when you're out on the trail and you use an ibuprofen, do you reseal the straw every time after you get one out? I suppose you could do that. You don't Just have asking to. the hard questions. <laughs> you do ask the hard questions. Yeah, this is definitely something that you can seal back up on the trail. Okay. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Henry David Thoreau. In Walden, he said, Heaven is under our feet as well as over our heads. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, then get outside or start planning your next adventure. We'll see you next time on the first 40 miles. There's no marble. <laughs> it's hard to say. Do you want to say camel? Camel line? Camel line. <laughs> weird. <laughs> so you're welcome to bring butter and salt. Thanks. Or a country crock and salt. No thanks. <laughs> I can't believe this is hydrogenated palm yes, kernel I can. oil. <laughs> if you bring a corn ethanol and <laughs> corn oil and corn to make popcorn. Wow. You should get a subsidy for that. Yeah. Thinking and talking is like chewing gum and walking. Which is why introverts never say anything during a group conversation. Yeah. We're spending too much time processing the input. <laughs> we just don't have the bandwidth to, <laughs> to generate a, a thought and express it. In time. Wow. Yeah, yeah, right, before it moves on to the next thing. I have great conversations in my mind on the way home from parties. If you want a lightweight way to protect your ibuprofen, <laughs> how are we going to say this? 